0: Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf.
1: And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of Watershed Lit. We are celebrating 23 years of the Fall for the Book Festival by sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to visit fallforthebook.org to find out more about our virtual festival.
0: Today, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. We've invited Richard Washer, a playwright serving as associate artistic director at the Rose Theater in McLean, Virginia, to share a scene from his new play, Dubliners in exile with us. Welcome, Richard. We're really thrilled to have you chatting with us today.
2: Great, thank you. Great to be here.
0: Before we we jump into this clip of the performance, we'd love to know what drew you to playwriting and where did you get your start?
2: Oh my, there's a question I wasn't expecting. It drew me to playwriting. I took a course. I was in undergraduate school at UVA, and I took a course in theater and was intrigued with it. And was reading a bunch of plays by Edward Albee and all these other writers. And I thought that looks like fun. And by my fourth year, I ended up taking a playwriting class that kind of launched me into it and came out of there, started working with new playwrights, which is long since sadly gone. It's now the Church Street Theater down in on near uh, DuPont Circle. Um, anyway, worked there for a little bit and
1: uh, it's Fantastic. been
2: downhill ever since then.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Dubliners in Exile before we take a listen?
2: But one thing I I kind of wanted to say right at the start, um, it is my hope that this this it's going to be an evening entertainment and not dependent upon knowing his work, uh, James Joyce's work, or for that matter, his life. But I do have a feeling as we talk through these things that the literary aspect of this will come out in the conversation, but it's not something I'm you know hoping that people come into thinking, oh, I don't get it because I don't know the literariness of it. But it's a, I hope I can make semi-coherent statements about this because I'm sort of in the weeds with the play uh, even now. But essentially, the the conceit of the play is is taking the structure from Finnegans Wake, where it begins where it ends and it ends where it begins, and uh, kind of thrusting James Joyce into a purgatorial state, and uh, where he is trying to make sense of things and. He is, things come at him, both real and unreal, and he has a hard time distinguishing between the two of them. As he does try to cope with that, he is becoming aware of something that he should be remembering, but not remembering, something important he needs to do, and that becomes gradually clearer and clearer to him until the end. And we can talk about more about that, but hopefully that kind of gives a little bit of a context. What the scene we're about to hear comes close to the end of the first act, it's um, yet w- one more thing that kind of gets thrown in his face and he's trying to figure out where am i and why is this happening and i thought i was over there when i'm over here now
1: excellent now let's listen to a clip from dubliners in exile written by richard c washer and directed by leslie Kobolinsky. the character of nora is played by raven Bonnewell and james joyce is played by christopher lane
3: Dubliners in Exile by Richard C. Washer We join the action of the play as Nora glares at Jim after a young Italian woman, Signorina Portinari, who is Jim's English pupil, has left, walking with a rather severe limp. Jim has just conveyed something in Italian to Signorina Portinari, and their exchange appears to distress the young woman. A man hovers nearby. He is Mac. Nora doesn't appear to see or hear him, but Jim is constantly distracted by him.
4: James, what did you say to her? What? The look on her face.
3: The look on it's her? It's
4: embarrassing. What is? This infatuation of yours is what?
3: I don't know what What's you're worse, talking you're about. embarrassing
4: her. Did you not see the look on her face just now, or worse, when you said, "'Oh, no, so soon?'
3: I did not say it that way.
4: Begging your pardon, but you did, and
3: much worse. No worse than the way you behave with Prezioso. You're like a schoolgirl the minute he shows his face.
4: Sure, I don't know what you're talking about.
3: Doesn't your voice go up an octave around him, and when he gave you the flowers, you were like butter melting into a puddle on the floor? The
4: flowers.
3: The flowers he brought you. He brought no such thing. I watched with my own eyes. Made a grand production of it he did, with you like a blushing bride. I wouldn't have any idea how
4: to be a blushing bride, now would I?
3: Then you held the flowers up to your face. You're
4: dreaming this up, Jim. I hate flowers.
3: And didn't I say that when he gave them to you?
4: I recall nothing of the sort.
3: You're saying he didn't give you flowers?
4: I'm saying exactly that. I do think you're jealous. Jealous? Of what? Him! Roberto!
3: You are free to make your own decision.
4: You've yourself to blame.
3: I have allowed you complete liberty, oh, and I allow it yes, still. I...
4: I know, I know. Liberty. And then there's always the questions, isn't it? You wanting to know everything.
3: A small thing to ask.
4: And don't I always tell you? Haven't I always told you everything from the beginning?
3: I suppose you have.
4: I've always wondered it didn't disturb you, Jim. But now I see what it is you're doing.
3: I'm not doing anything. Well, Why you asked him anything. around for
4: dinner. When? Today at four o'clock. For? You allow me what you call complete liberty, so that you can go be with Signorina Porta-Prince.
3: Her name is Portinari. Oh, Christ, you don't understand. No,
4: I don't understand. I'm not clever enough. Oh, but she is. She is so deep, she reads and understands your writing that no one else can.
3: I never once hid the fact oh, that she reads no, my writing. You
4: didn't. I just now saw what it means. All this time, the writing.
3: What are you talking about?
4: Writing for her. I just saw it with my own eyes. What else could it be but love? W- love?
3: Christ. I won't argue with you.
4: Because I'm right. Jim is a woman, I can tell you quite sincerely, mind you. She's a cripple in more than her leg.
3: Bertha, take care of her... Bertha
4: again. Nora. And who is this Bertha, is what I'm wanting to know.
3: Jim returns to his desk and his papers. As he searches, he hears the disembodied voice of Mac in his head. As fine a figure of a woman that ever was. Like the silvery light of the moon among the shadows of the night forest.
4: Is that it now?
3: Is what what?
4: There on your desk. You're putting me in one of your stories again.
3: I'm looking for a letter from Beckett that seems to have vanished.
4: You hear it as well as I do. People all the time. Oh, so you're Greta from that dead story. It's not a dead
3: story. It's called the dead.
4: Not dead enough, if you're asking me. Now I'll have them calling me Bertha, and who is she
3: I'm wanting to know? A wife.
4: Another wife, is it? All oh, of them wives, and me not one.
3: A common-law wife.
4: Oh, well, it is me then, isn't it? Or Molly. I suppose I should be grateful she's in your head not in your arms.
3: Or Anna. Anna? What? Huh? Or nothing.
4: You work to our gym.
3: And wasn't there Gertie and Amalia and Martha and the other one? Now, what was her name?
4: Your eyes will suffer if you don't rest.
3: Do you ever count them up on your fingers, Jimmy? A tally of love or lust?
4: And you might have found a better name. I wouldn't fancy going through life being called Bertha.
3: She turns to go and suddenly remembers.
4: Oh, my lord, didn't I forget about your student? I'll just go out and get him. Who is it? I don't know. He said he met you last week. Tom, was it? Or Thomas? I've forgotten his surname now. No, no, wait. Bracket, maybe. Baguette. Something like that. Beckett? That might be it. Wait, Tom Beckett. No, that doesn't sound right.
3: He's not here for lessons.
4: How do I know why he's here, all? He said that he was here to see you.
3: I told you to tell me when he arrived.
4: Didn't I come in to tell you just that that? And you biting my head off. Oh, you
3: slippery scoundrel, you. Get yourself in here. Jim stops short.
4: And what is it now?
3: The lights begin to dim. I... Where's the...
4: I'll get him, I'll get him. You rest your eyes and leave the lights off. You can work later. Distracting me with all this nonsense about birth and Senior Barticini and God knows what else.
1: That was an excerpt from Dubliners in Exile by Richard C. Washer and directed by Leslie Kobolinsky. Nora was played by Raven Bonnewell and James Joyce was played by Christopher Lane. The audio engineer for the clip was Trevor Cochran.
0: So Richard, just in that five minute scene we really begin to see into the mind of, uh, of James Joyce. And we're able, we're about to meet Samuel Beckett as well. Can you talk about how you were able to find the theatricality of the man who wrote books like Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake? Uh,
2: A very, very long process. And I fear that I'm still working on that. Um, It's, it's a daily struggle. Um, I've actually been working on this play now for about two years, maybe a little bit more. So every, every um, step of the way has been a, struggle trying to make sure, okay, this is not literature, this is not literary geekness, this is not literary criticism, this is supposed to be entertainment, and I'm on the stage and theatricality. What's stunning to me is that I, I find his, his work, Ulysses and uh, Portrait, Dubliners, are extraordinarily dramatic in their own subtle way. And so, from that perspective, it it, it, once I came across the conceit or the idea that he is trying to to, to discern between what's real and what's not real, what's his fiction and what's his reality, that theatricality kind of just jumped out at me. And just just using his material is is incredibly theatrical somehow, which I wouldn't have known coming into it.
1: So you mentioned before we listened to the clip. That the play is structured much like Finnegans Wake, and so this is that actually started to answer my next question a little bit about how you're balancing the literary with the theatrical. Because as you said, I mean, his he's written just so much, and it's so dramatic, it's so powerful.
2: Yeah, that's part of what I meant by being in the weeds too, because um, I I just feel I'm surrounded by material, and, and you know, there's this feeling of oh, I don't want to give that up. Um, but you have to, I mean, I, I'm going to be using a, a mere ice of the tip, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what material is out there to be used. So uh, using the material in the sense to tell the story. So using both, I mean, I've read, mostly I've been reading, I don't read much literary criticism of him, some of it. I'm mostly interested in his work and not so much what's been said about his work. Uh, having said that, I've worked. I've been sort of steeped in his biographies. Of, by Richard Elman's book by, about him, um, Brenda Maddox wrote a wonderful one on Nora Barnacle, and um, there's one about Lucia, which I, their daughter, who I, which I've read some of. Taking the real aspects and taking some of his fiction and taking some excerpts from his play *Exiles*, and using that to kind of tell the story has has kind of it makes it sound like it's been easy. It's been anything but easy, but, uh, it, it, when I trust that and, and get out of the way and try not to, to do what I'm thinking, as opposed to what it feels like the play needs to do, then it seems to really start coming together. Some. so in ways, maybe the, the excerpt that we just heard with, um, with the two actor, with Chris and, um, Christopher and, and Raven kind of gets at the one aspect of that, is this real or is this not real? And, and one thing I haven't mentioned is that my hope is that, and I, I think it's there, that the audience is essentially seeing this play through James Joyce's eyes, which is a little unusual for theater because it's usually objective, much more objective. You've, you know, each character is acting through themselves, but we're actually experiencing this with him. So what he doesn't know, we don't know ourselves.
0: It, it's really interesting to think about how, sometimes having all of that research and material in front of you initially creates kind of more of a challenge um, (laughs) when you're trying to find a way into a story. I I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the the James Joyce play Exiles. I think uh, a lot of people are familiar with his poetry and prose, but could you tell us a little bit more about uh, about his play, uh, which is called Exiles, and how it differs from his other writing?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I can, uh, you know, I'm not a scholar, so I'm not sure from a literary standpoint I can say much about how it differs, but uh, his play is fascinating. He wrote in 19, well, I think around 1914 or 15, or perhaps more importantly for us um, in context, he wrote it as he was finishing up portrait and had already kind of delved into a couple of chapters of Ulysses. So he was somewhere in that middle ground. He was also... Then, about fourteen years, thirteen years, twelve years, into his relationship with Nora Barnacle, who he married much later on. and so there were some interesting I mentioned that because the 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 dynamics of their relationship and their marriage and his relationship to his work get so intertwined in 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 a very sometimes unhealthy way, which is part of what I'm trying to explore with the play so and I'm, I'm I'm digressing, I'm sorry, Exiles. So he wrote that in 1914 or 15. Um, it's been a, a, a literary conundrum for many. There's, uh, even when it's been produced, uh, it seems to be a, a, a balance of, yeah, I like it. Yeah, no, I don't like it type of uh, responses critically. Uh, it It's essentially plays around with his relationship with Bertha, who is essentially Nora and Richard, who is essentially James Joyce and a guy by the name of Robert Hand, who is an amalgamation of guys who he felt like were not nice to him (laughs) to put it in one, one way he was known for, for using his literature to get revenge and, or to celebrate people that have been good to him or, or in the inverse, not good to him. And so the play explores him trying to encourage Bertha to, um, to go ahead and explore this relationship with Robert, who's their mutual friend, and she's not that particularly interested in doing that. And the uh, and and there's a lot of enigmatic aspects of the play, which is important to think about in context of um, the whole century, because as I said, he wrote it in 1914 or 15. It got maybe well, as far as I know, it got like 10 productions or so probably many more of that but those are the reviews that we have that exist about the play and most uh, interestingly in 1970 Harold Pinter directed a version of it and I'm bringing that up because there's aspects of it that worked in that production that um, in prior productions he got panned it's premiere in Germany got panned and it closed the same night it opened and there are various reasons perhaps why that went into it. And I don't know that much about that, but by the time Pinter came along and put on the pintoresque type of uh, feel to the play, uh, it, it was hugely successful and the, the responses to it were very different.
0: Maybe Joyce was just ahead of his time and he needed to wait for Harold Pinter to show up.
2: <laughs> I'm thinking so. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's another aspect and you brought it up earlier with uh, Samuel Beckett because um uh, Beckett was his sort of secretary as of, of sorts he helped him as he was working on Finnegan's wake because uh, Joyce suffered from an eye problem he had um, something called iritis eri- or something like that it's an inflammation and he was virtually not able to he was literally not able to see for some some periods of time so Beckett came in to help him so I, I kind of like to see, I see it as a kind of a progression because um, there are things that come up in Waiting for Godot and Beckett that you'll find in my play that seem to resonate because it's almost like Beckett took from from Joyce and went forward, and then Pinter picked up the ball in nineteen seventy with it. So, yeah, yeah, it seems like it was something he had spinning in the in the atmosphere in nineteen fourteen that took you know fifty some years to be realized.
1: I love these behind the scenes facts because you would never really think about that unless you were doing research into them or understanding exactly. their relationships. So before we move into our final question, you, know, you mentioned at, at the start of this episode that you hope that folks who don't know Joyce at all can go into this play and really enjoy it. But if you were to recommend maybe a story or one of his novels, probably not Finnegan's Wake, um, <laughs> for people to read first... Which would you recommend?
2: Gosh, if they're not familiar at all, I mean just just to avoid ultimate frustration, I would recommend just some of the stories from Dubliners. That's the most accessible. it's, it's funny, you know, I I've had a lifetime relationship with with James Joyce in term, in his literature. And when I um you know, read Dubliners and I was mystified, then I read Portrait and Dubliners getting clearer. And then I read Ulysses, and Portrait seemed really straightforward. And uh, I looked at Finnegan's Wake, and I stress the word "look." I mean, I'm not sure I've read <laughs> it. I've, I've I've looked at it. And Ulysses sometimes comes out very clear. So it's almost like you have to kind of grow through his literature with him. So that therefore, and in a specific story from um, from Dubliners. Oh I my mean, God, they're all they're all so wonderful. But I mean, certainly The Dead is of course the the masterpiece from that piece. But um, in terms, I haven't drawn from Dubliners in my place. So I'm not sure it's going to show up as much, but uh, the dead does only because Nora was a figure for uh, his, for Nora, his companion slash wife was a model for, uh, for Greta in the dead. And uh, as she was for Molly and Ulysses, as she was for Anna, Olivia Pluribel and Finnegan's wake and on it goes. So that might be a, you know, might be a possibility. Any story from from Dubliners I think that they're, they're marvelous.
1: Excellent. All right, so our final question on this podcast, we've talked to a lot of writers about their process of revision, but we've never talked to a playwright. You said yep. you're in the weeds right now. so uh, can you tell us a little bit about your process and how does the first draft reading series help you refine a play like this?
2: Oh, yeah, the first draft series is is marvelous because it gives me a chance to watch it through the audience's eyes. But, uh, but but before going to that, uh, in terms of, of, of pro- every project is different in, for me in, in terms of process. So one play calls for a different approach from another. Uh, this one has been a, an endurance and of one of, of trying to stay patient with it, um, as we talked about, trying to find trying to stay true to a theatricality of it and, and to to make sure that it's active and that it's not just telling his biography or it's not trying to you know, show off, oh, gee, I know about Ulysses, or I'd know this, or here, I'm pulling here from pulling there, but that it really generates an an interest. The process from that has been really fascinating to me in terms of revision, because what I have found is that I've written so many bad scenes. I mean, I've got hundreds of pages, most of it's bad. And when I keep going back over it, and keep kind of finessing it. I I heard uh, a a filmmaker once talk about like like taking um, tinfoil and, you know, how you can smooth it out if you did this when you're kids, but you could smooth it out with your fingernail and make it really, really smooth and then crinkle it up. And so in a way it's like that. So I have started with the first scene and I wrote that 20 times. And then I went to the second and I did, you know, and then I have scenes that are popping around and I don't know where they go. And, find they find their place and or i find it somehow and it's smooth slowly slowly kind of evolves into that the critical thing about the reading series for me is that i get to watch it through an audience's eyes and it's so different so it's it's um i'm getting actors who are objective about it they're they they do not have my insights or my ideas so it's a test of the material does it work um, they, bring, they find things that I didn't even know were there, which is really exciting. And uh, then when they take it in front of an audience, I find myself sitting in the back of the audience sweating like a pig and uh, just thinking, oh, wow, I didn't hear that line that way because suddenly I'm using the audience's eyes to experience it, the audience's ears to experience it. And um, that's such an amazing part of the, of the process that uh, Leslie brings makes available. To playwrights,
0: like an entire theater of beta readers.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's a discussion afterwards, which can be useful and sometimes not be. I mean that um, that's it's a, that's a, a part of the experience. But for me, what I gain most is just hearing the words coming out of the actors and hearing the audience responding to that, or watching the audience respond to it. And finding myself thinking, okay, hurry up, get through this part, because this is a crap, get through the next part, because that's better. And making a mental note, okay, well, then I need to go back and revise that, because you want it constantly to be moving forward.
0: Well, Richard, thank you so much for talking with us today. And uh, thanks also to the Rose Theater. You can hear their podcast, The Rose Rhapsody at www.rosetheater.net slash podcast. That's Rose, T H E A T R E podcast. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.
1: Read on.